This is Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg Radio is everywhere. Always accurate and precise. Bloomberg's really one of the places that's reporting facts. Your communication capabilities are wonderful for our business. I'm Ed Baxter on this week's edition of Bloomberg Best, an extended conversation with the biggest names in finance. I want to point out that central banks 18 months ago were 100% dead wrong. You've got multiple different forces that every company, every leader has to navigate. So I think it's important to have big ears and thick skin these days. You know, long term, I'm certainly optimistic, but I'm uncertain right now. And if you're a CEO and you're uncertain, you tend to be cautious about doing significant things. Jamie Dimon, Jane Frazier, David Solomon, and other titans of Wall Street weigh in on markets, geopolitics, and the state of global finance. Bloomberg Best, Bloomberg's best stories of the week, powered by 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries around the world. Thank you for joining us on this special edition of Bloomberg Best. Today, we're bringing you an extended conversation with some of the biggest names in finance. Now, it all took place at the Future Investment Initiative in Riyadh this week. David Rubenstein, the co-chairman of the Carlyle Group, led a panel featuring J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, Citigroup CEO Jane Frazier, Goldman Sachs Chief Executive David Solomon, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink, Blackstone Group CEO Stephen Schwarzman, and Bridgewater Associates co-founder Ray Dalio. They tackle topics ranging from markets to geopolitics and the future of finance. Let's listen into that conversation now. Larry Fink uh, started and uh, still runs the largest asset management firm in the world called BlackRock. Uh, Larry, do you see a tidal wave shifting to fixed income investments from equity investments? And do you think that will continue for quite some time? Or do you think that's really not a tidal wave and people are basically still investing in equities as much as they did before? Well, again, thank you for being here. It's always great to be in the kingdom. Um, as capitalists, as business leaders, we all, we all have a responsibility to speak a little louder today in a polarizing world, um, in a polarizing world where we're seeing terrorism, we're watching two wars, and here we are trying to talk about, you know, how to build, make it a better world. That's what this FII <coughs> is about. And so uh, we also have to then focus on the unpleasant parts of what's denying <coughs> the world for better growth. So. Um, we all have to be better humanitarians, and we all have to be more focused on how to make sure that the political side of the world uh, understands uh, that uh, peace and prosperity does work a lot longer and, uh, and does shape and lifts more human beings uh, to middle class and higher standard of living. Uh, and conflicts actually uh, uh, create much more global problems for, for the majority of the world. We are going to see higher interest rates, David. We're going to see higher interest rates for longer. Um, this reminds me of the 70s. I think some of us were, were on trading desks in the 70s. Um, and um, the 70s was all about bad, bad policy. Today it's about bad policy again. Um, and big macro shifts. Um, the polarization, the politicization of supply chains, the fragmentation is a big result of it. That is inflationary. Let me over, over, also say populism is very inflationary because we respond to the immediacy of the moment. We don't talk about long-term issues. Uh, uh, as we see more and more countries move to the far right, we see more um, 
threats towards immigration, uh, uh, the lack of immigration uh, is very inflationary, especially in economies like the United States. I'm talking about legal immigration. Um, and so, and then we have, um, we've had a government, I'm talking about the U.S. now, that in 2000, we had an $8 trillion deficit. And today we have a $33 trillion deficit. So the deficit's grown by more than a trillion dollars each year over the last 23 years. That is highly inflationary. The balance sheet of the Federal Reserve um, is highly inflationary. And so all these different measures um, are much more structural, much more difficult. So as a result of that, interest rates are going to remain higher. Opportunities for investors are going to be able to be very patient. Um, you could do nothing and enjoy a positive return. All right. So are you expecting a hard landing or a soft landing in the United States, or you just can't project? I, would, I do not. We will not see a hard or a soft landing in 2024. Um, the amount of fiscal stimulus that is just entering the economy, which is very inflationary. The CHIPS Act, the IRA, and the Infrastructure Act, about $970 billion. The largest peacetime non-pandemic moment of fiscal stimulus. At the same time, our central bank is trying to arrest the economy. And, and, and so that's, that, that's just hitting the J-curve. Uh, and, and you see um, in labor settlements right now what's going on in, in labor talk, 20, 25% increases in wages. So I, I don't see a, a problem, but I do believe the Federal Reserve is going to have to raise rates higher, which probably will mean by 25 we may have a soft, we may have a hard landing. That is the only way I see how we're going to be arresting this. But I don't expect it. Uh, anytime soon. I think the power of the economy, the power of the consumer that is giving me comfort that the economy is fine. Obviously, other parts of the world, the, the European economy is, is, is facing much more severe headwinds. And the, the, the one thing that I would say about the U.S. economy, we have a spectacular capital markets. We have the greatest capital markets in the world. Every country is trying to build their own capital markets. In our capital markets, we have the most unique mortgage market. 98% of all mortgages are fixed, 30-year fixed. So the transmission of high rates in the U.S. economy just takes much longer to impact the economy. And so that transmission is not being impacted as fast as the transmission of higher rates in other parts of the world. That's in Europe where they have more five-year fixed and floating, especially in the U.K., you see the transmission of higher rates impacting economies faster. So um, we should... You know, and I would just say one last thing. Uh, when, when you intersect what technology is going to do, uh, robotics, and the intersection of, of AI and robotics, we are going to have a boost in productivity. And that is going to be the next wave for deflation. That is not going to happen any time in the next few years. So I'm more optimistic today than I was four years ago. The transformation in medicine how we are shaping lives through diabetic uh, therapies that are now showing total impact on the health of heart disease, of diabetes, of kidney disease. There are so many reasons to be optimistic. Jane Frazier is uh, running, running City, the CEO of City, and uh, one of the largest banks in the United States. And I think the first woman to run a major money center bank in the United States. 
Well, we had to go outside the United States to find a woman to do that, but you're a native <laughs> of, uh, of um, Ireland. Scotland. Scotland. David, shame <laughs> on you. Okay, so um, are you optimistic or you're pessimistic, pessimistic going forward? And what's the biggest challenge in running City these days or a major money center bank? It's, it's, we're sitting here with the backdrop, which I think we all acknowledge, of uh, the aftermath of the terrorist attack in, in Israel and the, the events that have been unfolding since, and it's desperately sad. Um, so it's hard not to be a little pessimistic given that. On the other hand, we're also, as we talk about, in a world where um, there is uh, a new S in ESG, uh, which is security. Be food security, energy security, it can be defense, it can be financial security. And that's certainly a theme that all the, the CEOs around the world are talking about how to build more resilience countries, companies are doing so. So from City's perspective, um, as we operate in many different geographies around the world, as do many colleagues around the table, it's coping with a world where globalization is becoming more fragmented. The risks associated with globalization are getting more connected together. Um, and how do we manage and navigate that? Um, and as, as Ray said, uh, you've got multiple different forces that every company, every leader has to navigate. So I think it's important to have big ears and thick skin these days in, uh, in running any enterprise. So for the women that are watching or that are here, uh what would you say is the biggest challenge for a woman to rise up in a major financial service institution? Is there any discrimination anymore? Or is there more than there used to be? And what was the secret to your rising up? Oh, well, let me just point out quite a rather remarkable job the kingdom has done on this front. I've been coming here not quite as long as Jamie, but 15 years. And the last four years have just mm. been spectacular in the change that's happened since coming from COVID. Um, it's exciting to see. And I think this, this country is a good model for how to make sure that there is the education, the access to opportunity. And it's not token gestures, but it's focusing on recruitment, it's focusing on development, it's focusing on the promotion of women and providing access to opportunities. And I have to say, male allies are very important in that rise. Um, and several of you around the table have been wonderful allies to me. You're listening to a special edition of Bloomberg Best, an extended conversation with some of the biggest names in finance. Stay tuned for more coming up as David Rubenstein speaks with J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon and Bridgewater Associates co-founder Ray Dalio. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. Thanks for joining us on the special edition of Bloomberg Best. We're bringing you an extended conversation with the biggest names in finance. It all took place at the Future Investment Initiative in Riyadh this week. David Rubenstein, co-chairman of the Carlyle Group, led a panel featuring J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon and Bridgewater Associates co-founder Ray Dalio. Let's listen into that conversation now. Jamie Dimon, uh, you have led for quite a, more than a decade uh, the most profitable and largest market cap bank in the world, J.P. Morgan. So are you optimistic about the economy going forward? And are you as obsessed as many people are in the financial world about whether the Fed is going to increase interest rates again or cut interest rates? Does it make that much difference to the economy as you see it? I'm generally an optimist. I think you'd be foolish not to look at some of these things taking place today in Ukraine, Middle East, 
Uh, obviously, my heart goes out for Ukraine, uh, but also it's affecting oil, food, uh, food <laughs> prices, gas prices, <laughs> migration, potential starvation. Is probably the most serious thing we faced. And I hear people talking about ESG all the time. I just would put on your table the most serious thing facing mankind is nuclear proliferation. If we're not sitting here 100 years from now, it will be nuclear proliferation. It's not uh, climate. And so, uh, I, so I think when you look at the geopolitical situation, as complex as we've seen, and I, I don't know if it's 1948 or 1938, obviously all hope it goes away. I think it's a little bit of wishful thinking. It's going to take real leadership on the part of many people out there. And then I look at the financial situation, the, the fiscal spending, which is more than it's ever, I'm talking about the United States, but it's almost true around the world. It's more than it's ever been in peacetime by a long shot with the highest debt levels we've ever had by government. <clears throat> and there's this kind of omnipotent feeling that central banks and governments can, can manage through all this stuff. I, I, I'm cautious. I don't think it makes a piece of difference whether rates go up 25 basis points or more. Like zero, none, nada. I think whether the whole curve goes up 100 basis points, you know, I would, I urge people be prepared for it. I don't know if it's going to happen, but I look at what we're seeing today more like the 70s. A lot of spending, a lot of it's going to be wasted. I'm in favor of this whole uh, ESG effort. On the other hand, if you look at the way we're going about it, uh, it's almost like governments want to whack them all and force it, but no carbon taxes, no rational way to go about it that would be more important. In the United States, for example. You know, you can't build pipelines to reduce coal emissions. You can't build, uh, you can't build, get the permits to build solar and wind uh, and things like that. So we, we better get our act together. I'm hopeful, when I listen to all the R&D, see it around the world, we will make the breakthroughs we need to be climate. But it's going to be a day later and longer than it should be because of our own basic uh, uh, incompetence. I also want to add, add one last thing. I'm taking it from Bob Gates. To fix this, it's going to take real leadership from the Western world, in particular uh, America, but leadership which is not just military, diplomatic, development, finance, and this development finance, I don't know if Ajay is still here, what we need in development finance dwarfs what governments can do. It's been uh, said, and I think you've commented on this, that you would like to be President of the United States <laughs> if you could be appointed, maybe not run for it. Do you think you're old enough, you're only in your mid-60s, do you think that's old enough to be President of the United States? <laughs> I, I'm still maturing. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Let me turn to Ray Dalio. Ray, um, you built the uh, largest hedge fund in the world, uh, Bridgewater, and uh, you're also, in your new career, also an author. You've written a number of New York Times best-selling books. In one of your recent books, you talked about five forces that are affecting the global economy. So can you succinctly tell us how these forces are, are going to move the economy forward the next couple of years or so, adversely or positively? Adversely on the fear, but positively potentially. Uh, uh, <clears throat> yeah, uh, as a global macro investor for the last 50 years, my job has been to bet on what is going to happen globally macro. And uh, what I learned in my lifetime is that many of the things that surprised me happened with, because they didn't happen in my lifetime, but they happened many times in history, particularly in the 1935 mm. Uh, 1930 uh, to 45 period. So these five forces have always interacted, and I think everything that we're going to talk about today will be related to those five forces, and they interact. And those five forces, of course, are the debt, money, interest rate, um, economy force. The second is the internal order or disorder force. In other words, the internal conflicts that we are having today 
and the debts that we are having today are the largest since the 1930 to 45 period. And also you go back in history and you've seen enormous amounts of those. They have implications. The third great force, of course, is the international geopolitical force. <clears throat> uh, two great powers uh, that are rival powers. And then, of course, the uh, fact that there isn't a single world order. There isn't a single world power. It's very different than in 1945 when the new world order was created because you have a war, a dominant power comes out, or a dominant powers, and they set the rules, and everybody goes by the rules. Well, this is a very different world. And so uh, those three forces, um, I wanted to examine those over the last 500 years because to think about rises and declines of reserve currencies, um, rises and declines of empires and so on, I needed to get the perspective over that. And I discovered that the other two great big forces uh, were acts of nature, uh, which droughts, floods, and pandemics have killed more people than wars, and are certainly a dominant force at this time. And then the fifth great force has always been man's inventiveness and technologies. So we have these five forces interacting. So everything that we're going to talk about will be related to each one of those. And I think if we step back and we put that, each one of those, in a historic perspective, say, how are their degrees of influence com compared to those in history, the largest wealth gaps since the 1930 to 45 period, populism and so on. So those are the five forces. I think if we're looking at them and their evolution, it's like watching a movie play out over and over again if you have that historical perspective. And as we're looking at it, what we're seeing around the world today as we go into the elections that we're going to see in the United States, which are going to be over irreconcilable differences about wealth and power. And then we look at the geopolitical situation. And then we look at the climate issue. The climate issue is going to cost us, it's estimated, between 5 and $10 trillion a year in a world GDP that produces $100 trillion. So anyway, I think that those five big forces as we look at, if we look at historical perspectives and analogous periods, I think that that'll help us. I think we have to be concerned about that dynamic that's taking right. place. But put, put it simply, for next year, are you optimistic about the global economy or pessimistic? Pessimistic. Pessimistic. Pessimistic about the... Look, you, you, have, you have a political, you have a monetary, you have an, a, a conflict type of environment. At the same time, you have the greatest inventiveness. We talk about this fabulous technology development that has so much potential right. to um, produce wonderful things and then at the also it, it's a, it could be a problem. So if you take the time horizon, the monetary policies that we're going to see and so on will have greater effects on the world. And you look at the world gaps, so you can, it's difficult to be optimistic on that. And I think that now uh, the real issue, I think, is how we deal with each other. Okay. okay? If we, uh, it was said earlier very well, you know, um, peace. If we, can, if we can keep a peace, if we can have a, a, a healthy, competitive environment, without having a war with each other, we will be in good shape, we will make ad ad adaptations.
You're listening to a special edition of Bloomberg Best, an extended conversation with some of the biggest names in finance. Stay tuned for more coming up as David Rubenstein speaks with Goldman Sachs Chief Executive David Solomon and Blackstone Group CEO Stephen Schwarzman. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter, and this is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130 to Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991 to Boston. Bloomberg 1061 to San Francisco. Bloomberg 960 to the country. Sirius XM Channel 119 and around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter, and thanks for joining us on this special edition of Bloomberg Best. We're bringing you an extended conversation with the biggest names in finance. It all took place at the Future Investments Initiative in Riyadh this week. David Rubenstein, co-chairman of the Carlyle Group, led a panel featuring Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon and Blackstone Group CEO Stephen Schwarzman. They tackled topics ranging from markets to investment and the future of finance. Let's listen into that conversation now. David Solomon is the CEO of Goldman Sachs, uh, an iconic and one of the largest investment banks in the world, and commercial bank as well. So, David, the M&A business has been down a bit the last year or so. Is that because of interest rates, or why do you think that is? And you see the, the M&A world coming back at some point, and you headed the investment banking part of Goldman before you became CEO, so you know this business pretty well. You know, M&A, M&A David, is a function of confidence. And so, if you listen to the dialogue today, uh, I say there's great uncertainty, um, and people always try to frame things. You ask the question very clearly, you know, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic? You know, long term, I'm certainly optimistic, but I'm uncertain right now. And if you're a CEO and you're uncertain, you tend to be cautious about doing significant things uh, that change the trajectory of your business and bring outside, you know, factors into your business. You know, over time, scale matters enormously and the competitive nature of global businesses. And so M&A activity can ebb and flow, but as people become more certain in the environment, they have to move forward and continue consolidation and scale to compete effectively. You know, we've seen, you know, we've seen in the energy space over the course of the last couple of weeks, a couple of very significant deals to create more scale, more consolidation. Um, I think we had a an, a, a level of extreme confidence uh, as we were coming out of the pandemic because of all the fiscal stimulus, because of how free money was. And so you saw an extraordinary boom in M&A activity. A very significant portion of it was driven by financial sponsors and private equity capital. That's all now reset. And so, you know, my strong view is M&A activity over reasonable periods of time, decades, grows in parallel with economic growth and market cap expansion. We'll continue on that journey, and you'll see a pickup in strategic M&A. A few years ago, maybe 10 years ago or so, it seemed like half the classes at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, other really good schools wanted to go to Goldman Sachs right out of college. Is that still the case? People still rushing in? How many employees do you have coming in, or prospective employees every year? And do you, can you take all these people, or has it gone down and people now want to go into tech startups or public service or something? Well, there's a lot of competition for good people in the world. You know, Goldman Sachs... Uh, it feels very good about where it sits competitively to attract people. We had 265,000 applications for 2,600 analyst jobs out of university, and we had over a million people apply for positions at Goldman Sachs last year. 
we have 45,000 employees at Goldman Sachs. So it's certainly a very interesting, compelling place for people to come learn, meet other people, grow, gain experience. A small portion of them stay and build their careers in our organization. That's the way it's always been. Most of them go out into the world and you know, wind up at events like this or running businesses, doing all sorts of interesting things. So we have, we have a compelling, I think, human capital ecosystem. I think all businesses like ours, all professional services businesses, have to have a very compelling, competitive ecosystem for talent. Talent is so important in all the businesses around the table. If you don't find your own way of having that compelling ecosystem, if you don't give people good experience, good education, good mentorship, good economic opportunity, an ability to meet and network with people that they want to be around, it makes it much more challenging over time to run a good business. Okay, and let me ask you another question. You asked your employees to come back, or maybe told your employees to come back. Are they coming back and they're actually physically in the office now? We, we are, our business is by and large operating the same way now, on a global basis, the same way now as it did before the pandemic. I would say in the United States on Fridays, there's a slight difference versus what there was before the pandemic, but we're pretty close. Uh, Steve Schwartzman built uh, Blackstone into the largest uh, market cap uh, alternative investment company and uh, the largest in terms of assets under management, market cap, and so forth. Steve, uh, a lot of money has come into alternative investments in recent years, particularly in Blackstone, from retail investors. Um, is that going to continue as the economy maybe slows down a little bit in the United States? Or you think retail is a great source of investment capital for alternative investment firms in the future as well? Well, D David, um, uh, there's $80 trillion uh, in uh, retail investors, uh, and they're only invested in our area. Uh, alternatives, maybe 1%, maybe 2 When I started in the alternative business in 1985, institutions at that time had 1% or 2%. That was it. <laughs> Now they're 25%. Uh, so uh, I, I think, uh, and I've been planning on this since 2010, uh, which shows you my timing may be off, uh, that, that there's no reason why retail investors wouldn't want to get the same uh, type of positive experience uh, that, that institutions do. Uh, you know, alternatives should be able to generate uh, 500 basis points or more uh, than, than not using them. So why wouldn't you use them? Uh, so there were some regulatory inhibitions, but, but now I can tell you uh, from talking to the people who run these systems that, that they want really dramatic uh, increases in alternatives for their customers. Um, uh, institutions are, in one way, a uh, much more stable uh, source of capital uh, because they, they're very disciplined. Uh, they take advantage of dips. Uh, the, the retail investor uh, has more volatility. Sometimes when the world gets, gets in a bad position, they just don't want to invest. So you have to look at the growth uh, over a cycle, uh, and we're doing like really well uh, with this. We have uh, probably a quarter uh, of the trillion dollars we manage that, that comes from uh, retail uh, high net worth uh, investors. 
I think that's going to grow as long as you give them a good experience. Uh, and it's also, um, you have to have very good sales and service. It's much more service intensive than, than you would think. Steve, you also have one of the biggest real estate investment operations in, in the Western world. Um, many people think that the real estate world is going to suffer a uh, decline because interest rates have been high. People aren't coming back to work physically so much that maybe people don't need as much office space. Are you ex expecting a big decline in the value of commercial real estate in major cities, or do you think it's been exaggerated? I, I think it depends on the sub-asset class, David. So uh, office buildings uh, in the United States, to some degree also, uh, around the world, because of the pandemic, people got used to you know, staying at home. Uh, and it was actually more profitable for them to stay at home because one, they didn't work as hard, regardless of what they tell you. Uh, and the second uh, is they don't spend money uh, to commute. Uh, uh, you know, they can make their lunch at home. Uh, uh, they don't have to buy expensive clothes. And so their incomes are, are, are higher. So, so uh, j just um, one or two quick statistics. Uh, in the U.S., in the office market, uh, buildings are 20% vacant, um, uh, unleased. Actually, there's another 20% that somebody's leased, but the people don't come in. So you're looking at office buildings that basically are 40% unused. So I expect when those leases roll off, the companies will cut back the amount of space. You're listening to a special edition of Bloomberg Best, an extended conversation with some of the biggest names in finance. Stay tuned for more coming up as David Rubenstein speaks with J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, Citigroup CEO Jane Frazier, Goldman Sachs Chief Executive David Solomon, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink, Blackstone Group CEO Stephen Schwarzman, and Bridgewater Associates co-founder Ray Dalio. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. You're listening to a special edition of Bloomberg Best, bringing you an extended conversation with the biggest names in finance. Now, it all took place at the Future Investment Initiative in Riyadh this week. David Rubenstein, co-chairman of the Carlyle Group, led a panel featuring J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, Citigroup CEO Jane Frazier, Goldman Sachs Chief Executive David Solomon, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink, Blackstone Group CEO Stephen Schwartzman, and Bridgewater Associate co-founder Ray Dalio. The conversation wraps up with Rubenstein asking each executive what makes them optimistic at this point in time. Let's listen in to their comments now. Larry, optimistic? What makes you optimistic? I, I think um, as a species, we solve problems. Okay. Over the long here, history of humanity, we solve problems. We may have a lot of short-term problems. We may have issues, but um, I, I would continue to be heavily long-term invested over a long cycle. Okay, Shane? The average worker today spends 80% of their time processing and 20% on content. AI will turn that on its head. 80-20 will go the other way. That is a great enrichment of human lives. Hey, Jamie, what makes you optimistic? I, I think we've already mentioned the enormous progress Saudi Arabia's made, but if you go around the world, that was true for Ireland years ago, South Korea, 
Uh, several other countries and other countries have gone the wrong way. So technology, uh, I think the R&D, the brain power of both investors and, and is extraordinary. Uh, it's, it's not a given. Steve? Uh, uh, David, I look at, um, you know, sort of the future a bit with all the factors, but, but I also look at it from a cyclical point of view. I've been through six of these cycles in my career, and, and now we're coming off the top and, and we're starting to go down. So, so that would say to me that you know, next year perhaps is not so wonderful, uh, but then you'll hit your bottom and, and then, you know, we'll go up again. And, and, and given all the positive things people talking about, the trend is up, uh, but we're living in a post-pandemic world. And that's what's driven the spending after, uh, uh, you know, sort of the pandemic, which led to the inflation, which leads, leads to the higher rates, which then leads to the central banks sort of trying to kill that. And, and then we'll go up again after that. A minute ago, Optimistic? What makes you optimistic? There are more deals that can be made in order to make more change. We're seeing this happen all around in all dimensions. And the entrepreneurship that is happening is, is fantastic. I mean, the magic formula is find the most talented, inventive people and provide them with the capital and the ability to do that. Now, that changes very much by location. Okay, so I, when you ask me to deal with the world as a whole, it's a different thing. I think you'll see renaissance states. In other words, the neutral countries. And there are just three basic things you need to do. You need to earn more than you spend, have a good income statement and balance sheet. You need to compete well but not fight internally. And you need to stay out of a world war. Those places who do that, which do that, and do this innovation, I think are going to have a wonderful time. In history, there are the, well, I'll just leave it at that. All right, David, <laughs> optimistic? Uh, Optimistic always, but I'd, I'd agree with what, what, what Jamie said. It's not a given, but I'd point to three simple things that have been said in a number of ways. Advancements in science, advancements in technology, and the optimism and resiliency of the human spirit. Thanks for joining us for this special edition of Bloomberg Best. You've been listening to an extended conversation with some of the biggest names in finance from the Future Investments Initiative in Riyadh. David Rubenstein sat down for discussion with J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, Citigroup CEO Jane Frazier, Goldman Sachs Chief Executive David Solomon, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink, Blackstone Group CEO Stephen Schwartzman, and Bridgewater Associates co-founder Ray Dalio. For the full conversation, subscribe to the Bloomberg Talks podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter, and this is Bloomberg. Now stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now.